Hello, this is Glenn, and today on Infants on Thrones, I sit down with author Brenda Stanley to discuss her murder mystery book, The Still Small Voice. Now, we'll also be holding a live discussion with Brenda on Wednesday, January 31st, that's 2024, at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. If any of you would like to join that discussion, you can email me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com, and I'll also post more details, including the Zoom link that you can join with under this episode on the Infants on Thrones website. I hope that you join us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right, Brenda, thank you very much for coming on to Infants on Thrones. My pleasure. Your book, I really, really enjoyed. I'm so glad to hear that. I, I'm curious, uh, what made you reach out to me, to Infants on Thrones, to promote the still small voice? The reason I did was I have had a number of people who have either left the church or are considering leaving the church who have read the book, even and even a lot of uh, Mormons who are still very active read it and have made comments about how much they appreciated the authenticity of the of the setting, of the subject matter. And I just it shouldn't have surprised me because obviously, I thought about all of this as I was writing the book. Yeah, but I felt like maybe that's um, a group of people that I should reach out to a little more, and and I love hearing their feedback. I love hearing feedback really from from anyone who's read the yeah. book, but it it really struck a chord with me to hear them say things like, "This happened to me," or "This is so." Um, near and dear to what I grew up with. Yeah. And I think that's why I decided that, you know, I'm going to reach out a little more to to people that maybe the book might help in some way. Um, I certainly didn't go about writing the book with any intention of really anything except for what I do when I write, which yeah. is to tell a story and hopefully um, entertain yeah, but I found that this book has resonated with people who have either um, left the church, considering leaving the church, or just who have a real um, connection to it. There's something about the the family dynamics um, that really, really grabbed me, mm -hmm. and and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But let's let's uh, 
I, I want my listeners to know a little bit about who you are uh, mm -hmm. and uh, your background. I know that you've spent years in journalism, and honestly, that has me a little intimidated. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> it shouldn't. <laughs> okay. So, so tell me a little bit about your background, Brenda. Sure. I um I was I was born in San Diego, and my father was a police officer who ended up going into the DEA. So we moved around quite a bit uh, around the West because being an undercover drug agent, you can't stay in the same place for very long. Wow. So I, I lived in a lot of um, areas that had had major drug problems. Mm. And when he, he was shot and had to go back to school to continue his career because he could no longer work as an agent or as an officer. And he went back to school at Brigham Young. Mm. And we were LDS at the time. And so that's, we moved from, you know, some of the really kind of most crime ridden areas of the country to Pleasant Grove, Utah, which was an incredible culture shift. How old were you when you moved there? Fifth grade. Okay. And so we were there while he was um, completing his graduate degree. And then he became a police chief of Orem, Utah. Mm. And that is where I spent my junior high and high school years. And it was during that time that my family then left the church. Mm -hmm. However, because it was my only social um I mean, that's all I had. All my friends yeah. were in the church. I continued to attend, continued to go to the activities. And that wasn't uncommon. I had friends, a few friends who were Catholic mm. and who attended the church functions for the same reason that I continued to, because that, that was our... Um, that's where all of our friends were. And that's what friends did, the dances and so forth. So I continued on in that and actually even into my marriage, um, continued attending. But when I was in my early 20s is when I um, officially left yeah. and had done my research and, and thought process um, that went through that. So I have been, you know, it's been quite a while now. However, I've lived in Utah, in Idaho, um, almost that entire time. And so still very entrenched in the culture. Okay. And so when I, I began writing novels when I was very young, wrote my first novel when I was 17. And that's what I wanted to do as a career, but learned very quickly that there are no jobs in novel writing. You don't mm. just go and get a job. Very hard to have a stable income as a creative um, writer. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school, started taking English degrees, trying to find something that would satisfy my my love of writing, but also give me a, a paycheck. And I should go back a little bit in that I was a very young mother mm. and um, and needed to find um, work that was stable. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, got a job as a radio reporter, just as a total fluke. It was something that was open and I, I took it. 
And that's where I started my my love of journalism and found that many of the same things that I really enjoyed about writing uh, short stories and novels were in journalism. The research, uh, the you know, making sure that the details are correct. And even though journalism, you're, you know, all about the facts, making sure things um, are correct, it still requires a, a creative writing. You mm. want those stories to be interesting. You don't want your viewers or listeners to turn off. And so it, it was an incredibly, I mean, a, I loved my career and found, um, you know, just that was, that was the perfect thing. And I'm so glad and so fortunate that I had the opportunities that I did. Um, I worked for ABC news, did some work for ABC news in Washington, DC during the first Gulf war. Mm. And then, uh, produced when I was at KUTV in Salt Lake city. And then my on-air career as a investigative journalist and as an anchor was with NBC news in the affiliate in Idaho. Are, are there any particular stories that you remember uh, that really stuck with you and made an impact on you during oh, your time as a journalist? Absolutely. Um, the big one was the Jerry Underwood kidnapping and murder. Uh, that was a story about a, a young girl who during her paper route, she was collecting um, during her paper route and was kidnapped off of the streets down in, you know, little Pocatello, Idaho. And was you know missing she was act it was actually witnessed um the kidnapping was witnessed a woman saw this happen outside of her window and instead of immediately calling the police she called the family mm. and so they um then you know i mean it was it's small town and yeah. so nobody had seen this happen nobody or you know seen this happen before or had even had this experience and it was horrifying i mean the search all the, it was just so intense. And I started on the story immediately when it happened. And then when they arrested uh, the man who found, you know, they found to had killed her, mm -hmm. he admitted to it. And I actually interviewed him wow. um, a number of times and, and became, um, well, I shouldn't say became close, but I, I got to know the family very well because mm -hmm. of um, all of the interviews that I had done with them, both before she was found and then afterward, and stayed in touch with them because the story continued through. Um, he pled guilty. He went immediately onto, onto death row and then eventually died in prison. And that one still to this day is one that was horrifying mainly because my daughter, my oldest daughter was the same age as Jerry oh. Lee when this all took place. And so it was a really a, a difficult thing. You try to keep your emotions and, and all of your bias out of the stories, but to interview this family that was absolutely, you know, torn apart and tr it was so tragic. And then to go home at night and see my absolutely healthy, alive daughter was, was really, really difficult. Um, another story that came about at the same time was another kidnapping. At least we think that's what happened with Stephanie Crane up in Chalice, Idaho, which is an even smaller town than Pocatello. And this happened right after the abduction of Jerry Lee. So at mm. one point there was like this fear that there was some serial kidnapper, but um, 
this gal to this day has never been found. There is no trace of her whatsoever. And that happened from the very beginning. She simply vanished. And they didn't find shoes or a backpack or anything. Just somebody saw her walking home from the the bowling alley that was kind of the town place to hang out. And then she was gone. And like I said, to this day, nothing. And so my one of my novels, it's called The Color of Snow, is very loosely based on mm-hmm. that story as I was covering it about a young girl who was kidnapped as an infant. And then they find her years later as a 16-year-old um, and just how she was found and how her life intertwined back together. So I, I use a lot of what I've learned as a journalist in my fiction writing. Um, All my stories are mysteries and have some element of crime um, in them. It it, it sounds to me like the, the, the writing, the creative writing was a way that you could kind of therapeutically deal with these challenging emotions that you would have when you would see these stories that became, you know, like to most people, their stories that you hear about on a TV, you're actually sitting across from the family talking with them. You're talking with the guy who did it. And right. then you have to take that home with you. Yes. And and uh, it, it seems like the writing played a really valuable role. Am I overstretching? In, no, in I think you're absolutely right. I think at the time I didn't necessarily see it that way Mm. but I definitely do now as I as I look back I've I've had six novels published and each one I can see what I was either doing at the time or thinking about at the time what was affecting my life at the time because of the stories and just how they came about so I definitely feel that that was the case. And I feel from the very beginning, when I first started writing, that's exactly what was going on. Um, I was a, a teen mom and had, I mean, just very, very um, poor living on a reservation in eastern Utah when I first started writing. And it was an escape. Reading was an escape. Um, I was, I didn't have a television set. I had a little transistor radio. This was way back in the early 80s. Yeah, so obviously no computer, no internet, no cell phones. And reading, I remember that time too. Yeah. Reading <laughs> was my was my go-to because I could go to the library for free. Mm-hmm. And I think I began writing because I enjoyed reading so much and how those um, stories helped me escape that I wanted to to do that. I, that's what I wanted to do. And so that's that's how it all started. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I want to go to your first book because mm-hmm. I, I, I did a little research on it. Yes. Um, it's called Zucchini Houdini. Yes, yes, but I'm a tell, cookbook author as well. <laughs> yeah, tell tell me tell me about Zucchini Houdini. You a bet, bit. you bet. Yes, that was my my first published book. Mm-hmm. Um, I had already written one novel that was being shopped by my agent. And that's I am Nuchu, and that's the book I wrote when I was 17. But I kept it, and it actually wasn't published until two thousand two thousand and ten. So mm-hmm. decades later. But the Zucchini Houdini, I live in Blackfoot, Idaho. I've been here for quite a long time. And I have a lot of 
um, we live on a small ranch, so I have a huge garden and I love it. But one year I planted way too many zucchini plants because I had so much space. I wanted to fill it. And so then I had all these zucchini coming out everywhere. It was just crazy. And I hated to waste. So I created all these recipes, everything from, I mean, breakfast to desserts to breads. And my poor husband had to be the guinea pig to try all this stuff. So he started as a joke calling me the zucchini Houdini because I would try and hide it into all these recipes. Um, (laughs) I ended up writing all the zucchini Houdini recipes down and put it into a DIY book for or DIY book for my friends and family for Christmas that year. And as I was discussing my novel one day with my agent and just how things were going with the um, publishers on that, I just mentioned to her, by the way, you're going to be getting this book. It's a joke. It's this. And she said, oh, Brenda, I could sell that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. So she took it and she sold it to Cedar Fort, mm. which I didn't realize this until actually we started into the contract process that um, Cedar Ford is one of the largest, if not the largest, um, LDS publisher. Oh. I mean, almost that's what they do. And they're located just, I mean, south of me in like Spanish Fork, Utah. Uh, and here, my agent is from Florida. She's, yeah. she's not um, aware, but she knew that this was a company that published a lot of cookbooks and did real well. So that's who she pitched it to, and they bought it. And I was um, really surprised because, not because it's a cookbook, not because of zucchini, because I know that um, this area is you know, big on cooking, big on zucchini, but the cookbook is kind of tongue-in-cheek and it has some kind of racy (laughs) you know some of the chapters are but so I was really surprised and I kept thinking is it because it's really not that bad or is it because they just don't see this but it did very well and every September it climbs back up onto the bestseller list because people are at that stage of where they're like what do I do with all this stuff all this and so, yeah, and I've done two other cookbooks with Cedar Ford as well. That's a lot of crock and everyday <laughs> vegetarian. So, yeah. Nice. Could you give me an example of one of the racy chapters of Zucchini Houdini? Well, there's some like um, Get a Rise is oh, yeah. on yeah, the breads uh-huh. and oven. I mean, there's just some of those things. and Little entendres. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I I found some similar titled books, and this is also going to be tongue-in-cheek. And so I want to read you the title of the book, (laughs) and then you tell me what you think this book is about. So the first one is Pasta Sinatra. Oh, so probably um, Italian Italian favorites. Okay, all right. Uh, Kumquat Astronaut. So Odd Fruits. (laughs) Odd Fruit Recipe. (laughs) <laughs> All right. T- two more. Boysenberry Missionary. Oh. Hmm. So recipes that missionaries have put a- together when they're out in the field. Oh, oh, you got the okay. I see okay. what you did there. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Then the last one that was my personal favorite. Green Jello Othello. <laughs> I- I've actually considered doing um because my mother still has a green jello recipe that is 
the most scary thing ever, but my family loves it. So yeah, no, I would <laughs> probably end up getting that one. I, the thing I love about the Green Jello Othello title is the uh, uh, Othello, that Machiavellian, that scheming, that kind of like <laughs> under, you got this nice green jello that seems yeah. so saccharine sweet and can be scary with all the things no, put um, in the it. The Green Jello recipe my mother has actually has... Um, chopped green olives in it oh my goodness i know i know and it is def it's a savory it's not a sweet jello it is a savory jello with yes um it has celery and green olives and some other things and you serve it in a round it's like a bunt cake looking mold and then in the center is mayonnaise oh good grief <laughs> i know oh, yeah geez. Wow. And it, yep. Yep. My family loves it. So. All right. Well, that's a perfect transition because, <laughs> uh -huh. and I say that again, tongue in cheek, because your book is titled The Still Small Voice. Mm -hmm. T tell me, tell me why you chose that Still Small Voice as the title for your book. I, I feel like the title is, um, I, I felt the title was perfect because it really encompasses this woman's journey from you know what she was told and how she was told she was supposed to live and you know to listen to the still small voice and to you know do what what it tells her and how she comes full circle to really to listen to herself to listen to her her feelings and her um what she knows to be true mm. and, and so i just i felt not just with her journey, but with others, um, other characters in the book. It just, it just felt right. And because the setting is within a dysfunctional LDS family in the Orem Provo area, because the still small voice is such a um, prominent um, song and, and message within the LDS church, I just felt like that, that really did tie in well. Yeah. Um, one of my friends from high school, I've had a lot of my friends from high school read this. And one of um, my friends said, when I told him the title, and he said, wow, way to poke him in the eye. And mm. he said, no, no, no. I, that That was absolutely not my intention at all. I just felt this was so... Um, perfect. It just fit, regardless of of how you feel about the church. The title just fit with the story. I felt just perfectly. Yeah. So, so this is a mystery. It is. Do do you, do you want to give the summary? Uh, just... Sure. Um. Sure. I. All of my books, all of my novels are are mysteries. They all have um a lot of twists and turns. It's what I like to read and so mm -hmm. it's really what I like to to write as well. I love having people get to the end of the story and say, "Wow, I did not see that coming." Um that is the the biggest compliment uh for me. This one I you know, it's a, about a young woman who has been estranged from her family for years is summoned home by her father who is dying and she decides reluctantly to to come back home and see him and while she is alone with him in his room 
he tells her about um, a, the death of a, a young girl during a youth church camp years ago when he was very young and that the woman who is convicted and in prison all these years is innocent and that he has proof. And he gives her a photo album from photos that he had taken at that camp all those years ago and tells her that um, she can find the proof within that photo album. And he is slowly dying. So he's losing his sense of, you know, memories and all these as, as she's there. So she's unable to really have him say, this is what happened, or this is who did it. Or, and so she is having to do her own investigation and looking not just into what has happened in the past, but also into her own past and, you know, why she left, how she left. So there is some, you know, there's obviously some backstory that twists into um, what is happening now and, and how she eventually learns the truth and how it relates to her own, her own life. Yeah. I think, I, I think the moment when the story first really grabbed me was pretty early on in your book. Um, when Madison, who's, who's your main character is flying back to Utah and she's in the airplane and she's looking out at the mountains and she is reflecting on these mixed emotions that she has with what she mm -hmm. left with what she's coming back to how she's going to feel about coming back you know all these questions and as soon as she got around the family and they started talking there <laughs> there was so much about it that was familiar to me but also not familiar to me because i i, I left the church probably 15 years ago and a big part of it was uh when I divorced uh, my wife, uh, my ex-wife, her family reminded me a lot of this family. So I, I've had a lot of distance from that kind of interaction and environment. And it like brought me back into it so powerfully. It was like triggering. I could feel it in my body, like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And the overwhelming sense that I had pretty much from that point on when I would read your book is how grateful I am to not be in that, yeah. <laughs> not be in that um, culture of, uh, and I'll say the the Madison's mother is very um, harsh, mm -hmm. uh, judgmental. She doesn't seem like she's happy about anything at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, the her old Madison's older brother is. Uh, just terrified because he's got his own secrets that mm -hmm. you know there his backstory comes out as part of uh, madison as she's doing her investigation and just the hypocrisy and uh rejection of shame and guilt and it, it just so much shame it seemed like shame was a really big yes uh, emotion that you wanted to explore i think that that, that is i mean really one of the main um themes of the book is the incredible power of shame mm. that emotion i think i mean it, it is so in incredible that what people will do what people won't do um because of that uh you know it, it just it ties back to you know people don't like being 
um, embarrassed. Mm-hmm. They don't like feeling like they're being singled out or uh, pointed out. Um, you know, it's the reason why a lot of people, most people are terrified of speaking in front of people. You know, it's that feeling of being judged and being looked at. And I think you know, a lot of people they'll do just about anything to keep from being in this position of, um, you know, embarrassment and shame. And so that was the the main theme um, of the novel is how that emotion plays so strongly into not just the LDS religion, but in, in most religions um, that is, you know, how you're kept in line. And so that is why I really decided to focus on that and and so the setting just played in really well. I, I was very fortunate in that um, when I left the church, when I left the church, my family was already out, mm-hmm. and so I did not have to um, deal with a lot of the the same issues that people who leave and and families are still very much in it have to deal with. But I witnessed it over and over again from so many of my, my friends and, and, and I went, you know, when we talk about going back to that area, even though I don't live that far from that area, I don't go back there hardly ever. Um, I don't have family there anymore. That's one of the reasons, but it it is a, like you say, a little triggering when you go back and the mountains I went back from my high school reunion this past was a year ago and I was so surprised at how the mountains affected me Mm. because growing up there, I think I took them for granted. I was just, you know, they are so immense and so beautiful. And, you know, we had a lot of the um, activities were up in the Canyon. Mm -hmm. So I'm driving up there and just seeing it all, I was really blown away by how I thought, you know, for so many years, I was not real happy with that area and had bad memories. Right. And so going back and seeing how beautiful it was, it made me realize, wow, this is, it's just incredible. And some people have actually said that they felt like the mountains were almost another character in the book, that they had that much of a um, effect on yeah on the storyline. And, and I, I looking back, I think, yeah, that it's kind of true. Yeah. It, it's, it spoke to me as well. I, I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in Arizona, but mm-hmm. we would, we would go up to Aspen Grove sure. family camp, which I think was one of the inspirations uh, mm-hmm. uh, where your setting was kind of loosely based on what Aspen Grove and some other places are kind of like that. Yes. Um, and yes. it, it, uh, also, what what is it? Timpanogos Peak? Because there's the yes. legend. There's the legend of the princess, the yes. Indian princess that jumps off, and then that kind of plays a role in uh, in your story as Utana. well. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, it all. It's um, you know, especially if you do grow up in that area, so many of the activities are up either American Fort Canyon or at Provo yeah. Canyon at those different things and. Um, even when I was in school in, you know, very young, we had a school uh, function that was a camp out up at a place called Cherry Creek. 
And that, um, or Clear Creek, I believe it was the Mm. name, could be wrong. But that, even though it was school, um, you know, it was a school function, it was at a church, really, that's the church um, used that camp for a lot of their activities. And so, yeah, so much of what I have in there is based off of what I remember in my childhood and, um, you know, what I've seen. Yeah. All right. There's so many things about your book that I'd like to talk about, but right. I know that we, we can't because there are there there are mysteries that you want mm-hmm. the readers to be able to uh, discover for themselves. Right. Um. What What were some of the things that when when you went into writing this book, mm-hmm. wh- what did you go like? What was the major inspiration for it? I guess. I. I had written um, a short story like decades ago that I I really loved. Um, But at the time, I just felt like it was not, um, it just wasn't something I felt would resonate, I guess. It it was something that I really liked the story. I felt it was um, something that I had was powerful and would have an impact. But at the time, I just didn't feel comfortable about releasing it. And so I kept it with a lot of my stories that I write. They, you know, I print them out or I put them on a disc and I just kind of carry them around with me for a while. And we got discussing, my husband and I, about something that had happened. There, There is a lot of teen suicide in Utah and as well as in Idaho. And we were discussing that and just some of the the reasons behind things. And I remembered my story, my short story, and I brought it back out and started fleshing it out and realized there's a lot more that I could do with this that would um, expand it into a novel. And that's how it came about. But it was a lot of the just looking at, like we just discussed, that that power um, of the emotion of shame, which was big into that story. And I think a lot of the, um, the suicides that we see have a lot to do with that. You know, the, the, the kids that are, um, that are doing this are not feeling accepted. They are not feeling part of what they're supposed to be part of. And so that, that played a big role in, in what I was writing. And I just felt it was a more, um, timely story now than when I wrote it all those years ago. What what did it mean to you to 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 dive into these characters, dive into their mysteries, their motivations, that their emotions, the shame that they have? Like how mm-hmm. did that impact you? I even even the characters that are the bad guys, so to speak, I become very attached to. Um mm-hmm. I get to know my characters inside and out. I've told people before, if you see me driving in my car and I'm talking to myself, it's probably because I'm talking to one of my characters and getting Mm. to know them, these discussions with them. And I think that it's really important. Those conflicts are what bring out um, the personality and the character traits um, that you want. And so to have those characters that have those qualities that are not positive 
are just as important as your main characters, the ones that you want people to really empathize with and relate to. Um, Madison, obviously, I some people people that I know would read the story and, you know, a couple chapters in, I'd get text messages saying, is Madison you? And <laughs> I'd have to say, no, no, she's not. She is a journalist. Um, but no, she is not. She is not me. But I relate to her. Um, I have to relate to my characters. And, you know, her her best friend, Jenny, is a a real compilation of people that I know, um, people that I've known long time and others that um, have had similar situations that she's had, you know, they mean a lot to me. Um, Even Darlene, the mother, I've seen that. And so, you know, in not just my friend's parents, but in people that are my peers, you know, women that have been so tied into things that they can't, that their church comes before their children, um, which I just do not understand. Um, I, you know, I've seen a lot of that. I have two um, children who identify as LBGTQ. And, you know, for the life of me, I just don't understand anyone putting anything um above above their child and so that um played into a lot of how i portrayed her and what i saw what she was feeling i know what she was feeling what she saw what she didn't want you know what was important to her and that's that's how i wrote her yeah that the darlene character the the mom was especially Mm -hmm. hard for me there were times i mm-hmm. wanted to this is going to sound <laughs> I, I i wanted to grab her shoulders and shake her yeah. <laughs> and say your daughter is here she you know like mm-hmm. love her like yes. you're the yeah i i'm regretting that i said grab her shoulders and shake her now <laughs> well you know and it's interesting because i what i see in so many people is no matter how badly they have been treated by their family, you know, when they've left or for any other reason, that family, the parents can be really terrible to them. And yet they still want that acceptance. They still want that approval, even when they know you know, that the estrangement is, is wrong. It's not their fault. It's not um, something that they've done. It's, you know, their parents have made that choice to estrange them, not something that they've done. It's, they still want that approval. And Madison still went there and was feeling those, those emotions of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be part of that family. Yeah. And the, the thing that, jumped out to me as you were talking there is how you know like because i was thinking why why would uh parents be so cruel to their kids if mm-hmm. you know for, for whatever reason it might be uh a lot of it seems to be the way that they're seen by other people uh exactly. you know like you got to put on a you got to put on a show you got to mm-hmm. fit the mold and mm-hmm. if you have like you said you've got 
daughters that are LGBTQ. And if you were in the Mormon culture and that doesn't really fit, then you'd be embarrassed. You know, like I, I, exactly. I have three children and my two uh, oldest daughters also identify that way. And their mom has had a real hard time with it. And mm -hmm. so seeing the impact on my girls and so much of it seems to be uh, based on what other people are going to think about you. I think that's and, exactly right. And it's, it's another form of shame. It's another <laughs> form of shame. You know, it's as a parent, um, it, you know, it's exactly that, it, you know, this shame of our family is not the way that it's supposed to look in that, you know, especially this time of year, the happy family Christmas portrait that everybody sends out on their Christmas card, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, that you want that to everybody to look and, you know, be the way that they're supposed to be. And when it doesn't fit that way, there's, you know, the parents often put that on their shoulders and yeah, it's unfortunate. What what do you think the antidote is to that? Oh, that's a, that is a tough question. Welcome I, to I Infants just, on Thrones, Brenda. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I just feel kindness and acceptance and, you know, it sounds so uh, generic and, and simple and idealistic, but that I just believe that is, that is what it is to, to judge people by anything, by, by the way they look, by what they believe, what path they've taken in, in life is just, it's not the way. Um, I've also realized that your kids are they're people they're individuals and and have their own personalities and have their own goals and dreams and and that's if they're not an extension of you they are you know someone to be respected and loved and and to to watch and be you know happy if they're happy you want them to be happy and if this is the path and this is what you know, then then accept it and be happy for them um, I think it just is, is really unfortunate that if people don't fit in that little mold, that everybody's life seems to dissolve down and it just shouldn't be that way. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me that a lot of times the reason, uh, you know, we've talked about feeling the shame is how you're going to be rejected or judged, uh, mm -hmm. by others in society. And yet society is malleable society changes and society can be on a large scale or it could be on a small scale like the group of friends that you hang out with right mm -hmm. so if if you're it, it would seem to me as i'm as i'm thinking about your book and i'm thinking about the different uh reasons that characters had to feel shame uh one of the antidotes i guess i'd say that i saw from your writing was uh, taking control of the environment that you're in and mm -hmm. really kind of accepting that inner voice. And this is this is who I am. This is how I'm going to be. Uh, and surrounding yourself with people who will accept that and support that. And when that's not your family and it's not the the group, the culture that you were raised in, it might seem like it's really hard to find a it place. Is. It is. It is. And I think that um, the younger you are, you know, you have fewer experiences to 
to go off of to realize that this is not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think the older you get, the more you realize is, you know, things change, friends change, things, you know, change. Yeah. And anything, you know, things that have happened in the past um, are in the past. And yeah. you can move forward. You can um, create and have a life that is full and happy and just because, you know, I think back to some of the things that I worried so much about when I was younger that have absolutely no bearing on anything anymore. Um, and that I think young people don't have that sense. And it's unfortunate. And that's, you always say, you know, what could you tell yourself now if you could go back and tell your, you know, 16, 17 year old self um, that that is it. You know, this this is not the way things are going to be. These people are not going to have the effect on you that you think that they are, you know, it will be good. It will be better. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a swing at mm -hmm. uh, saying something about your book that I, I find really important. And then you can tell me after the fact, if you want that <laughs> edited out or not, uh -huh. but I, okay. I, I found you 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 create a parallel between your main character Madison and then this character Millie, who has been incarcerated. She's been in jail for I think it's forty years, mm -hmm. and so as we're thinking about shame, it seems that that Millie stayed in jail. Like she created, she surrounded herself, she locked herself away because of all of this shame. Whereas Madison didn't she went a different route and both had their challenges but i i just find it so interesting comparing the two of them together that the thing that millie like as she was locked in jail for 40 years feeling the weight mm -hmm. of all of the shame and guilt and sadness and grief and all all of this stuff the world outside was changing things that like people are becoming more accepting uh, exactly. The the things she didn't have to put herself away and lock herself for forty years, but she she didn't feel comfortable facing the truth, right. um, and listening to her own uh, still small voice in inside of her. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm guessing that that was intentional the way that you created those two characters. Uh, yes. But I wonder if you could absolutely. speak about that a little bit. And did I do I, that okay without uh, yes. giving anything away? All right, you did. <laughs> I um. You know, I see in my own life the differences um, generationally, um, how how people are are viewed. You know, things that have happened, and I wanted that to come through because, you know, when this um, when the killing happened, it was in the early '80s, and you know, things were so different then. Um, has everything changed? No, but a lot of things have. And so that that was something I wanted to explore um, with this story to show, you know, how how things how things do change, move on, you know, things will be better. Will they be perfect? Well, you know, no, there's we still have so far to go with so many things, but um, that was that was a very very important yeah. thing for me to to add in there yes
And and the last thing I want to ask you about is how you play around with readers' assumptions or expectations mm -hmm. of what's happening. Because it, it, it seems like assumptions also plays a role in what you were talking about with shame. If you're assume, assuming that you're carrying around something that is going to be right. uh, really shameful, if people know mm -hmm. you're making this assumption, and it may or may not be true, you don't really know. Right. Um, so how, how do you play around with assumptions and what, what role does that play? Well, it's, it's a huge, um, part of my writing. Um, it's, I think what creates a really good twist and a surprise ending is how that reader is. I mean, they're assuming it's going to turn out this way. And then when it doesn't, that's when it's a real impactful um, ending and what, you know, I, I strive for. So I do really enjoy looking at things that could be used in that um, when I write. So and this one, it, it has an exceptional um assumption and mm -hmm. <laughs> that I've, you know, heard over and over again that people have actually gone back and reread it just because they could not believe that they did not see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really enjoyed um, hearing that. Um, and, and, you know, I had a story just recently, I, I, I went in uh, to the dentist and realized that um, my dentist was also a bishop and he told me he had he had read the book and at first i thought oh really <laughs> and but he said you know it's something i wish my congregation would read mm. and that really made me feel good that yeah. i had done not just an accurate job of portraying the culture but a fair job he felt like i wasn't um going in, trying to bad mouth, trying to make things that it was a real true and authentic representation. And that, um, that was a huge, huge compliment to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I also want to, uh, say that I didn't feel like you're, you were attacking Mormons. You weren't mm -hmm. attacking the culture. Uh, you weren't singling it out. You, you weren't saying, um, that, just being Mormon is bad. Right, right. <laughs> That's not what was going on. Um, it's it's you were showing a dysfunctional family that expressed their dysfunction with a Mormon flair mm -hmm. and using Mormon language and Mormon symbols and you know all, all these different things. And I I found that really compelling. But I I also um, would agree with your uh, dentist slash bishop that <laughs> it, it it would be a good thing for. Mormons to read. They, they don't have to worry about their faith being uh, challenged right. by any historical issues. You're right. not like coming out and going, it's it's just, you know, like when bad thing or when tragic things happen inside of a family, uh, how is it dealt with and things that are swept under the rug or things that are brought forth to be accepted and and loved and healed or mm -hmm. <laughs> hidden and, you know, like. I, I really uh, could have said it in any um any family, any yeah. dysfunctional family. Um, but you know, you're supposed to write what you know. And yeah. that's what I grew up in. That is what I know. And so it and it felt it felt right. Um yeah. and it and I feel it worked. Well, thank you, Brenda.
I really appreciate the opportunity that you gave me to to read your book, to listen to your book, actually, because I listened to it Thank on you. Audible that you narrated, yeah. and you did a great job with that. Thank you. Um, and I, I have to ask one more question, which mm -hmm. is advice for aspiring writers, because yes. my middle daughter right now, she just applied for uh, uh, MFA degrees in creative writing. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, when you said, it's so hard to make a living, this <laughs> my heart just dropped. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, and she doesn't listen to me anyway, she's going to do things on her own, <laughs> how she wants to do them. But, but what advice would you give for aspiring writers who would like to, in today's day and age right. and climate, uh, achieve some of the success that you've had? I think, you know, it's the simplistic thing to say, but I hear a lot of people say, oh, I've always, you know, I've, I've wanted to write a, a novel. I've always had this novel in my head and I've always wanted to do this. And, and my advice is sit down and do it. Just start writing, write the book. Um, you can't do anything, can't market anything, can't sell anything, can't find an agent unless you have the book. So, so write it and have people that are supportive, have, you know, friends, family, read it, have other people that don't love you read it and give you, you know, good criticism. Um, I think the biggest mistake I made in the beginning was having my mother and my husband read my mm. stuff because of course everything was great. Yeah. Um, finding those people that are beta readers as they're called that don't have that connection to you that can tell you honestly this doesn't work or this is great. Go, you know, do more of this. That was, that was the biggest, um, you know, help for me and just stick with it. I've been doing this a long, long time. And it, it takes that having, you know, two, three, four, six books mm -hmm. before people start reading and then finding your other books. And, so then it's just kind of the ball starts rolling from there. It 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 seems that finding an agent is a really hard thing to do to like it is. To, you, you know, you you write your books, you've got it, yep. and then you find somebody that says, Yeah, I I I can actually make money on this. Yeah. <laughs> and that's done. that is key is that your agent doesn't make money unless your book makes money. Yeah. And so, you know, they go into this they have to love what they're trying to sell. And the reason why you need an agent is because publishers won't, the big publishers will not even look at you unless you have that agent because they know that this agent's already vetted mm -hmm. uh, your work. And if they feel confident to put work into it without, you know, getting paid, then there may be something there. And so that is very, very important part of it. I've been very fortunate. My agent was also an editor for years, and that was huge um, yeah. in helping me. All right. Well, good luck to her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think so, too. She's, yes. she's a great writer, great imagination, and just trying to find a place where she can really surround herself with people who... Mm -hmm. see that and uh, find value in what she does. That's what I'm hoping for. Yep, good for so, her. I, I think that's wonderful. All right. Well, thanks very much, Brenda. And anything final that you'd like to say? Uh, places that uh, listeners of Infants on Thrones can come and check out your work? I would um, yeah, highly recommend uh, you know, either the audio book or you can find it just about anywhere. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all the websites. I have 
contact information on my websites. I would love to discuss the book. And I I will do um, Zoom calls to book clubs anywhere in the country. I absolutely love doing that. So if that's something that you would um, find enjoyable, uh, we can talk about the book. We can talk about a bunch of stuff. And I, I would thoroughly enjoy that. And it would be it would be fun to talk about the book when I don't have to like exactly. not talk about the mysteries. And that's <laughs> that what's fun great. about the book club is we can actually let it all yeah. come out. Let it so, out. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Brenda. Thank you Good so luck much. In the future. I all appreciate right. that. Take care. And if you'd like to join us for a discussion with Brenda, come join us on Wednesday, January 31st at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Check out the website for more details. And once again, thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic.